Well, good morning. And this week I was reminded that it was exactly eight years ago since I took a trip to America. Now, in recent years, the price of flights there has been steadily falling. But back 100 years ago or more, for most Irish people leaving these shores for America, a one-way ticket was all they could afford. And there was no guarantee that they would ever see their homeland or their family again. In the 1800s, during a time of great poverty and famine, those immigrating would usually be a young person from the family. And ahead of them was a very dangerous journey and a very uncertain future. And so a tradition grew up called an American wake. Now, the American wake was in all respects very like an ordinary wake, with one difference. The person being waked was still alive. And the night before they left, family and friends and neighbors would all gather together at the home of the person immigrating, and they'd spend the night saying their goodbyes, because this was almost certainly the last time that they would see this person alive. Now, I'm standing here today near the site of a house that once stood here, and I know that an American wake took place in that house. The family were in great poverty, and the bank repossessed their home and their farm. So these American wakes were times of great somber reflection. People would give advice about uh, what the young person could do on getting to America, what they could do, what they shouldn't do. And there were a lot of tears shed that night. And then the next day, the tradition was that the person would be walked to the railway or to the port where they left. And it's estimated that between 1820 and 1930, something like four and a half million Irish people shed those tears, went through that pain of separation. And in fact, by 1890, some 40% of all people born in Ireland were already living abroad. Now, in our own home city of Derry, was one of the main departure points for people leaving for America, especially from the northwest, from Donegal. And on the quayside there, they've erected some statues to represent that painful parting. There's an old man and his wife saying goodbye to their young family. And you know, even though they're just inanimate objects, the artist has managed to convey the pain in the posture and in the expressions of those people. I can only imagine how painful that separation must have been, you know. I mean, as parents, um, I've had that experience uh, three times. Uh, we've gone to a foreign city where we have left one of our children there to start a new life, at least to start university. And, and I must say, driving away and leaving them there, I've cried every time. And I was going to see them again in a few weeks' time. So I don't want to even think about how I would have dealt with giving them an American wake you know, the thought that I'd never see them alive again, because I can feel from deep within me there would be a river of tears that would come up, a flood of uncontrollable emotion. It's strange that, isn't it, that even though uh, such a separation has never happened, uh, maybe to you personally, you can still feel a reservoir within your soul of the raw emotion that such an event would bring to the surface. And that's because there is already in your soul the very presence of, of something that the pain of separation could not exist without love. You see, the agony of separation is only as great as the love that exists for the one you have been separated from. No love, no pain. Great love, great pain. You know, for those parents returning home from the quayside to an empty house, you know, their lives would have been marked and defined by that separation. But that's only because their lives were already defined by the love they had for their children. Now, when you think for a moment of the potential for great grief that we each carry on the inside, that is a sign of the presence of great love. 
It is only when we so love that we so grieve over separation. Now listen to John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. You see, if God so loved the world, then God so grieves in pain over separation. But his grief is not self-centered. It's not for himself he weeps, but for those he loves. Now, if it frightens me a little to think of the potential within me for great grief, then what I'm really glimpsing is the power of love in my life. Now, if the love in my life has such power to define me, imagine what love there must be in God's heart. No wonder the Bible declares, our God is a consuming fire. Now, the love of a parent for their child is a consuming fire, and that same fire that consumes us with love can also consume us with grief. At times of separation, the greatest force in our lives, what defines us, what informs all our decisions, the love in our hearts, suddenly it can rise up from deep below and surprise us and shock us and burst out into the visible realm in the form of a flood of grief. And that grief is a, a frightening thing to behold because it has the potential really to consume your whole life. And uh, people have had their lives consumed after such an event by that grief going on for a long time. Now, I suspect that uh, we each have no real idea of the depth of the power of this consuming fire in our lives called love until we experience separation. I remember an incident when uh, our oldest child, Christopher, was just about five years of age and we were visiting a nearby town and we turned around and suddenly he was gone. Uh, somehow he got separated from us and we just couldn't find him. And as soon as we realized he was really gone, we started shouting his name at the top of our voices. And after 10 minutes and there was still no sign of him, we had managed to organize strangers into a search party. You know, when 20 minutes came, we were beside ourselves and suddenly he came walking around the corner, calm as you like, and the poor wee fella didn't know what hit him because we fell on him and we were hugging him and kissing him like he had been gone for a year. Now, at that time, I felt a little bit embarrassed that I had let my emotions so overcome me. But the power of that consuming fire within me was such that even to this day, I don't want to think about the state we would have been in if he had not been found by that night. Now, that little incident of separation had only served to give me a glimpse of the magnitude, the power of that volcano that lies in the heart of every parent, the consuming fire that directs and informs all our life decisions. Yet the Bible tells us that we were made in the image and likeness of God. Now think of that for a moment. Is the love we feel for our children only a shadow of the consuming fire that burns in his heart for all people? Does God love you and I in that way? Yes or no? You see, if the answer is yes, then we cannot hope to understand his words and his ways without knowing how consumed he is with being one with us. Now, what I want to show you this morning is that God knows that there is no way you or I can understand his words or his ways if we do not know his heart, the volcano, the consuming fire that burns for us. And this is why he pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. For to receive his Spirit is to receive the love of God. And that love is a consuming fire that you begin to feel. And uh, what you begin to feel is how he feels for people. And so all your words and your actions are now birthed from, informed by, and directed by his love within you, which is his very nature. So to be filled by his nature, by his spirit, is to be filled by his love. And this consuming fire changes the way you are as it arises within you. 
to be flooded then by his spirit is to be flooded by his love. And such a flood has the power to wash away all the lies and the false ideas you had about him and his attitude to you or his attitude to anyone. Now, when his spirit, when this volcano of fire, this great love rises up in you, you find that you cannot be the same person. In that moment, you will find that you can feel towards a stranger the love of a parent for their child. No wonder the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, be thee continually filled with the Spirit. Be thee being filled. Think what a world it would be if everyone was filled with this Spirit, this consuming love for the stranger, as if he or she were your own child. But let's start with the church. Think what a church it would be if we were all filled with this consuming fire, this love of God for the world, in the same way, we were, in the same way that we're consumed with love for our own children. What would that look like if we give the same grace to the stranger as we do to our own children? You know, I've seen down the years ministers of the gospel who, when there has come a crisis in their own families, they have found it impossible to impose on their own children the heavy burdens that they'd laid on others in God's name. They have discovered that the volcano of love within them won't stand for it. You see, everywhere Jesus went, he found sincere religious people who believed they were properly serving and representing God in calling the world to change their ways, but doing it without God's love for those people, doing it without his spirit. And that's why those same people were scandalized when they saw Jesus not just speaking to these people, but obviously loving them, eating with them, laughing with them, crying with them, embracing them. They could not understand how he could possibly be reading the same God's word as they were and be behaving as he was. After all, how could it be possible for two people to read God's word, to read the same verses, and yet come away with two totally different understandings of what God was saying? Now, this is an important question, especially when we understand how division in the church grieves God's spirit. So what I want to show you this morning is that to understand what a person means by a statement you need more than their words. You need their voice. And this is why we've been given God's Spirit. You see, in a person's voice, you can hear their emphasis, their tone. And it is in their emphasis that you catch their spirit, their heart, and their words, uh, what they're trying to convey. For it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Now, first let me convince you of how easy it is for different people to take different meanings from exactly the same statement, the same words. Here's a simple statement containing seven words. Now forgive me if you've heard this before. Here it goes. I never said she stole my wallet. Seven words. Now, listen to my voice and how as the tone of my voice changes, as my emphasis changes, so too the meaning of that simple statement. I never said she stole my wallet. 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 You see, no matter how many times you read that sentence on the page, only hearing the author speak it out, and so hearing where he places the emphasis can reveal to you what was in his heart when he wrote it. Now, here are some really good news. On the day of Pentecost, the gift that was given to the church was not the book, but the author of the book. 
Jesus did not say, my sheep can read. He said, my sheep hear my voice. That's because God doesn't just want us to know his words. He wants us to know his voice. Now, when I say he wants us to know his voice, I mean he wants us to know not just what he says, but how he says it, his emphasis, his thoughts, his heart, what he believes, what he really means by his words, what's behind his words. In short, he wants us to know his spirit if we are to understand his word. To know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. To know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. Now, the root of the word emphasis or to emphasize means to let something appear, let something be seen. By the emphasis of my voice, I can let my heart, my true meaning, be seen. Now, the Apostle John spoke of the appearance of Jesus on the earth as the exegesis, the drawing out, the appearing, the letting God be seen. And that Jesus did that so well, John said it was as if no one had ever seen God before. We could say that in the person of Jesus, how he spoke and acted, we finally could see and hear the emphasis of God, his true spirit. Because to know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. Do you know that in the first two centuries of the church, no believer had the New Testament as we have it today. No Christian could go and pick up their Bible to read it every day in the way we can. And yet the whole modern church looks back to those first 200 years for their example of how the church should be. Now let me show you how important it is that we know God's spirit, his emphasis, and that we continue to grow in the knowledge of his spirit and be filled with his emphasis. Right now, you are listening to my words, and I'm doing my best to put the emphasis in the right places in order to convey my true meaning. Yet those of you who don't know me may be thinking that I just said that we don't need the Bible. Whereas those of you who do know me know my emphasis, know my spirit, know that that would be the last thing I would ever say. I can only talk to you this morning about the voice of God with any confidence because I have the word of God as my spirit level. If anything I say this morning doesn't appear to line up with your understanding of the word of God, then I'm hoping you'll be more like the people of Berea than the people of Thessalonica. Listen to the difference between the two according to Acts 17 verse 11. Now the people of Berea, it says, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So far from telling you not to read your Bible, I'm hoping that when I speak to you of the voice of God, that God wants you to know not just his words, but his thoughts, his belief, then you will go away and open your Bible and you will read passages like those found in 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul tells the Corinthians that we have been given the Holy Spirit so that we could know the thoughts of God. And that's why Paul declares that believers can speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's 1 Corinthians 2.13. Now, can you hear what he's saying? We're not called to simply repeat words or phrases that we have learnt. The church was not given the Spirit of God to preach the gospel like a formula. If you will do this for God, then he will do that for you. We have been given the Spirit of God that we would know the thoughts of God, the heart of God, his whole emphasis, his passion to be one with people. For only out of his consuming fire of love for people can his words flow with their true meaning. Simply speaking his words, repeating his words, without his love for people, can never reveal, can never bring out to be seen, can never emphasize his spirit. 
To know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. To preach the gospel with an emphasis on what will you do for him rather than look what he has done for you is not to know his spirit. For if you knew his spirit, you would never leave people to save themselves by what they do because he never did. Only through believing in God with us, Emmanuel, can we be freed from the lie that God left us. My point is, it's not enough to know someone's words if you don't know them well enough to know what they meant by those words. And for that, you need to know their thoughts, their heart, what they believe. And for this, we have been given God's spirit that we would know God's thoughts. Now, let me put all that another way. Do you know that God's word says that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? And yet, when I checked on Google this week, about the number of Christian denominations, groups, and factions throughout the world, it's reached over 30,000. 30,000. Yet they all claim to be reading the one book. And if you asked any of those 30,000 different Christian groups to justify their existence, each one of them would start to quote you from the one book. Now, why do you think that is? I never said she stole my wallet. You see, we can all read the one book, but without being filled with the one spirit who reveals the thoughts of God, the heart of God, the emphasis of God, then seven Christians will continue to read the same verse and come up with seven different emphases, seven different meanings. The biggest challenge facing the church today is not that the world isn't listening to the words of the church, but that the church isn't hearing the thoughts of God. I'll say that again. The biggest challenge facing the church today is not that the world isn't listening to the words of the church, but that the church isn't hearing the thoughts of God. But that's always been the way, which is why God's word says to every generation, be thee being filled with the Spirit of God. It's not enough to say his words when we do not know his emphasis, his thoughts, his beliefs, his heart. And for this, we have been given his Holy Spirit, who pours the love of God, his heart, his emphasis into us. When you know his heart, not only do you speak his words differently, you read his words differently. Do you know it wasn't the illiterate poor who organized Jesus' crucifixion? It was the people who could read. People who had read God's word all their lives and memorized his words and repeatedly repeated his words to others. Those people were the very ones who crucified the word of God when he came in flesh. You see, there's a far worse thing than neglecting to read the word neglecting to listen to the author of the word, the one who desires to pour into our hearts the heart of God, the thoughts of God, the consuming fire of God, his love for this world, the emphasis of God, for emphasis reveals true meaning. Now listen to how Paul says all this to the Corinthians from 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is in him? So also, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You see, you and I are given the Spirit of God because it was always His intention that we do much more than speak His words, he desires us to think his thoughts, to have his mind, the mind of Christ, that through our lives his nature would be expressed, would be emphasized. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wonder how many of those 30,000 splits in the body of Christ would have appeared if there'd been a little bit more emphasis on God's love, God's joy, God's peace, God's patience, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's gentleness, and God's self-control. If emphasis changes meaning, can you see how important it is that the emphasis of God is revealed to us, what is in his heart? And for this, we have his Holy Spirit, his loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled spirit, who gently and patiently and lovingly is renewing our thinking to the emphasis of God. Now, I said all that because I wanted to ask you a question this morning. When you're speaking to people about God, where do you place the emphasis? On their life for him or on his life for them? You see, how we speak reveals how we think. Where we place emphasis as we speak reveals the emphasis of our thoughts, the emphasis of our heart, what we're believing. For it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So listen to yourself speak. When you're speaking to people about God, where are you placing your emphasis? On their life for him or on his life for them? We just celebrated Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, that event is nothing short of a turning point in the history of man because the cross marks the ushering in of a new way of living by faith in God's life for you, Christ. Now, before the cross, man's faith was very much in his life for God. For God's life for him, God's true view and opinion of him, Jesus Christ had not yet been revealed. And when Jesus did appear, when the word appeared in flesh, he revealed that God's emphasis, his thoughts, were so far above what man had previously thought that even though Moses and David had written extensively about God, the Apostle John could declare that before Jesus came, no man had ever truly seen God. That's John 1.18. And this was confirmed by the strong reaction against Jesus that came from those who thought themselves the guardians of God's word. They simply could not understand how Jesus seemed to have no problem fellowshipping with sinful people. From their reading of God's word, God's whole emphasis appeared to them to be on separation. But when God came in flesh, his whole emphasis appeared to be on union. There was no house he wouldn't enter, no unclean person he wouldn't touch, no sinner he wouldn't speak to, no sickness he would stand back from, even death. What was his emphasis? His emphasis wasn't on the people's love for him, but on his love for them. The whole emphasis of God was revealed in Christ. And that emphasis was not on your life for God, but on his life for you. Right from the moment Adam lost faith in God's life, man was left with his faith in himself. We can say his emphasis fell from God onto himself. Now to live life with your emphasis on yourself is to live a self-centered life. A world full of people living self-centered lives is a world full of war. A church full of people living self-centered lives is a church full of division. Man was plunged into that dark self-centered life when he believed a lie, the lie, the lie that God has left you to become like him to save yourself by what you do. Let me rephrase that, the lie that God has left you by yourself. It is in believing that lie that the whole emphasis of your life centers on you and what you should or shouldn't do in order to become like God. 
someone able to simply be without having to do. Now, Adam and Eve believed the lie that God had left them to become like him by themselves. And that's why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked so good to them. For it appeared to them that all they needed to do to become like God was to know what to do. But eating of that tree, what I called a few weeks ago the self-effort tree, did not bring them the life of God. Because God's life is, I am, not I could be. God's life rests in being. It doesn't work to become. He calls himself, I am that I am, because he isn't becoming someone. He just is. To be filled with his life is to be filled with his rest, his being. In religion, the emphasis is on becoming. In Christ, the emphasis is on being. Now, if the way down into this self-centered world is by believing the lie that God has left you by yourself to become like him, then the way up out of this self-centered world is by believing the truth. And the truth is that God has not left you by yourself to become like him, but in fact, 2,000 years ago, the truth, God with us, Emmanuel, his being was given to us to set us free from the lie and all the consequences of the lie, all the effects of living by ourselves separated from God. And this is why Jesus called himself the truth and also the way and the life, because only through believing in him, only through believing in God with us, can we be freed from the lie that God left us. Oh, I'll say that again. Only believing in God with us can free us from the lie that God left us. Only light can dispel darkness. If the lie that God left us has covered the earth like a deep darkness, then how does this darkness get dispelled? Only light can dispel darkness. Only truth can destroy a lie. But light cannot dispel darkness without entering it. You know, if I'm sitting in utter darkness in the basement of a house, someone turning on a light in the attic does me no good. The light has to be turned on in the basement. I might also say that I still can't see the truth about where I am if that light is just a small match. I need a light bright enough to drive every bit of darkness from that basement. And here's the gospel. Such a light has come. The light is here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is the truth that destroys the lie. He is the light that dispels the darkness. Whoever receives him receives his life, and his life is a life of being. It's the light of man. Whoever doesn't receive him is left in the darkness of religion, the life of becoming but never being. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. Matthew 4, 16 describes Jesus not just as a light, but as a great light. The description given is said that men live in the shadow of death, you know, and to live in the shadow of death really is to live all your life constantly overshadowed by separation. That's what death is, you know. And if you live as someone who's been living by themselves to save themselves, then you're living under the shadow of death, the shadow of separation. As long as the emphasis of your thoughts and your heart, your beliefs is on separation from God, then the whole emphasis of your life will be on what you need to do to save yourself from separation. In other words, the whole emphasis of your life will remain on you, your life for God. And that is such a self-centered life that it can never reveal the life of God the light of his being. You know, truly, to fall from grace 
is to fall from being to becoming. To be filled with the Spirit of God, the truth of God, is to be filled with the knowledge of His being with you and your being with Him, the knowledge of Christ, God's life for you, God's life with you. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian believers, set your mind on things above, not on the earth below, for you died and your life now is hidden with Christ and God. Can you hear what he's saying? Church, are you going to live fallen or risen? Are you going to live as if separated from God or as if one with him? Are you going to live as if Jesus came or as if he didn't come? Are you going to live believing Emmanuel, God with us, or believing that he has left us by ourselves? Are you going to live as if becoming like God by yourself or being with Christ in God? Are you going to live becoming a light or being a light? You know, right from the moment Adam lost faith in God's life, his emphasis fell from God onto himself, and man was left with his faith in himself. That is what it is to fall from light into darkness. To live life with your emphasis on yourself is to live such a self-centered life, a darkened life. To live life with your faith in yourself is to live a self-centered religious life. A world full of people living self-centered lives is a world full of war. A church full of people living self-centered lives, religious lives, is a church full of division. To know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. To preach the gospel with an emphasis on what you will do for him rather than look what he has done for you is not to know his spirit. For if you knew his spirit, you would never leave people to save themselves by what they do, for he never did. Only through believing in God with us, Emmanuel, can we be freed from the lie that God left us. The whole emphasis of God was revealed in Christ, and that emphasis was not your life for God, but his life for you. The biggest challenge facing the church today is not that the world isn't listening to the words of the church, but that the church isn't hearing the thoughts of God. To know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice, the cry of his heart, for us to be one with him. And for this, we have Christ, God with us. He is God's life for you and God's life with you. But today, for all those who have ears to hear and the heart to receive the emphasis of his voice, his spirit, then Christ is now God's life in you. For to live the life he freely gives, the risen life in him, not the fallen life of self-effort, the life in the light, not the life in the dark, you need only let his light dawn in your darkness today. Let Christ be God's life in you and your life in him. For that is the consuming fire of his heart, the emphasis of his voice, union with you. And today, if you can hear the emphasis of his voice, then you are knowing his spirit. For to know his spirit is to hear the emphasis of his voice. God bless you.